Twas the night after Christmas, and all through the woods, strange lights were seen stirring, and none of them good. In Rendlesham Forest, in England round three, triangular crafts seemed to fly twixt the trees. The soldiers were nestled inside of their base, at RAF Woodbridge, to tell you the place. To patrols in the woods, Colonel Halt at his desk, Lieutenant Colonel, in case you should ask. When out in the forest arose such a clatter, patrols that approached to see what was the matter. Away from the soldiers, it flew in a flash. A metallic object had colored white rash. The beasts in a barnyard stirred into a frenzy, for this craft was a new thing to the cows, sheep, and hensy, and then were the coppers soon called to appear. But all that they saw was a light towards the piers. At four in the morning, they were too late to douse, and the only light shone from Orford Nest Lighthouse. And then in the morning, the soldiers did see mysterious burn marks and broken old trees. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. Probs didn't do this. They were on vacation. So what could this episode be, you may ask? UFOs from the 80s, I plan to unmask. Lieutenant Halt's memo and the Army's involvement give this here case a Roswellian adornment. As Halt would exclaim, those ships flew out of sight. Happy Rendlesham Forest incident to all, and to all a good fright. Welcome, welcome to the foxhole and fox so esoterica. I promise I was sober when I wrote this. Welcome back to Foxo Esoterica, the paranormal podcast where I perform poetry now. Parody poetry, to put it precisely. I'm your host, Forsetti Fox, the host who makes a point to tell you how much he knows what alliteration is. Thank you for joining me on my obligatory Christmas episode, inasmuch as I release an episode on the 25th of every month as a part of the release schedule, and it just feels weird if I don't use a Christmas theme for it. However, tonight's episode is more of a Boxing Day episode, and if you lack poetry analysis skills and are unable to tell what tonight's episode is about, and also didn't read the title yet, we are going to be discussing the 1980 Rendlesham Forest Incident, or... England's answer to Roswell. And considering that my life has kind of settled into a little bit of a comfortable niche, that'll wrap up the uh, introduction bit. I have no more housekeeping to do. Too bad, the trumpet just kicked in. So yeah, uh, here we are at the unscripted section where I talk about the uh, encyclopedic collection this evening, and that'll be Futura Stella collection. Uh, brackets the should have been the Futura Stella compilation. Don't know grammar. Uh, and our potion brewed this evening is going to be another wine arc because we have a bit of wine uh, to us today. Uh, this one is the Costiere de Nîmes Rosé from Appellation d'Origine Protégée. Uh, it is from France, but it is trocken because I have purchased it in Germany and it's dry. And I did the cork already. It's not really related to the theme. I just, we got a rosé and I never drink rosé and it sounds fun. And I'm doing it alone in my apartment right now. So I'm so cool. Uh, it's got notes of like, 
This one's, this one's like got like a sour vinegary thing to it, but like some cherries there, some berries. Ooh. Okay, I ooh. I don't like the initial taste, but like it resolves on your tongue very nicely. It's got it's a it's a little vegetable-y. There's there's something there's something to it that I'm getting like a like zucchini, and that's weird. That's unhinged of me. But like also the sweetness I was talking about earlier. A little floral. It's dry. And I like it. And it was good that I did wine today. Uh, and now I can put the duvet back over the microphone to block out all the sounds and jump into the sources because I did the introductory poem and that covered pretty much everything you'll need to know until I'm pretty sure not reading right now after the sources I give a quick rundown anyway so let's do it two times instead of three times so let's jump right into the sources I'm using Wikipedia but I'm also using the website the Rendlesham Forest Incident Case File, made by Ian Ridpath, and this will be a Chekhov source. Keep an eye out for how it relates to the plot. Uh, I used Dr. David Clark's 25th anniversary assessment titled The Secret Files, Rendlesham, published in the 2005 December issue of The 14 Times. I used the article, The Rendlesham Forest Incident, the UFO sighting that is one of East Anglia's great mysteries on Cambridge Live's website, written by Dan Haygarth. Uh, and then there was this one book on the subject, and I think it was titled You Can't Tell the People, but the introduction simped for Margaret Thatcher somewhere around 20 times, so I didn't feel like reading it, because I'm not the biggest fan of Thatcher. So, there are a lot of places one can start on stories like these, and call me an Austrian governess, but in my opinion, the very best place to start is very likely the very beginning. So. The Royal Air Force Woodbridge Station was built in 1943 in the southeasternly Suffolk County in England for World War II. It was not a permanent base initially and was primarily used by English pilots for emergency landings of damaged aircraft because emergency landings blocked the other established runways and the, the Woodbridge area was quite close to the channel. Returning bombers that ran low on fuel also relied on RAF Woodbridge in similarly emergency adjacent situations. The base was also built in tandem with other short-term Royal Air Force runways, and it was constructed the same year as RAF Bentwaters, an airstrip to the northeast. After doing war for a while, the Allies won World War II. RAF Woodbridge was temporarily closed in 1948, but then the Cold War came up. The US wanted to, and succeeded in, borrowing RAF Woodbridge for their jet squadrons and stuff. For airplane enthusiasts, i.e. my mother. The first squadron of jets stationed at the base was the U.S. Air Force 79th Fighter Bomber Squadron, with its Republic F-84G Thunder Jets. Little ad-lib, I looked them up, they look cool. They look like fighter jets. But moving on. The base was used as such in 19, from 1952 up until 1993, when the Cold War fizzled out following the fall of the Soviet Union. And later that year, the British took it back over. I should clarify, the British took back over the base and used it to this day. They did not take over the Soviet Union. In 2006, Royal Air Force Woodbridge would be renamed Ministry of Defense Woodbridge, and to this day it is used mostly by the British Army, though the Army Air Corps does a bit of training at the location from time to time. So, interesting to note, all of the aliens such and such happened when the US was operating the base, and a lot of American higher up type people were behind the reports. 
It is important to note, though, that unlike Area 51-type related matters, REF Woodbridge was not a clandestine base with undercover black ops operations. Pretty much everything about the base is public information these days, with little in the lieu of redacted documents. Pretty much all of the airplanes and helicopters stationed at REF Woodbridge were the run-of-the-mill aircraft at the time. Is this a tangent? Probably. Did the fact-checking of each aircraft and its historical significance require 15 minutes of my time, justifying an addition to my notes? Naturally. Anyway, aliens! Where do they come in? On December 27, 1980, unidentified United States Air Force personnel at REF Woodbridge Station claimed to see, quote, unusual lights over the next-door Rendlesham Forest. This occurred around 3 in the morning, so it isn't really a Boxing Day episode either. In my defense, it was the 26th three hours ago it would, when, when the event took place. This is a Christmas episode, everyone. Let me have this. The Air Force people thought it was most likely a normal airplane attempting to make an emergency landing and failing at that a little bit, so they requested permission to go investigate. Three U.S. Air Force patrolmen went out to do just that, and folks, joining us this evening are U.S. Air Force members John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, and Ed Cabinsag. Everyone give them a hand. I can't hear it, but I assume you're giving them a hand. Also, I should specify, they're not going to be joining us this evening. I know that two of them regularly go to, like, ghost hunting TV shows and podcasts and stuff. I'm not that cool yet. But moving on. Then, quite early into their search, the patrolman reported seeing a strange, glowing, triangular-shaped craft idling in the middle of the forest, and it didn't look like it crashed at all. It wasn't a particularly large craft, however, and was described as two to three meters across at the base, I'm assuming the triangle, the base of the triangle, and two meters tall, propped up on metallic legs, but maybe also hovering, and shining lights throughout the woods. Tis a bit of an abstract observation, I must admit. Apparently, it was shining a white light throughout the forest, but it also had a less luminous red light on top, and stripes of blue lights at the bottom. As the patrolman crept closer, the craft made a crying slash screeching noise and skedaddled through the trees, before disappearing. And immediately after, nearby farm animals went crazy randomly. Every article brings this detail up, despite it seeming sort of mundane to me. That's just my take. The police were called, and showed up about an hour later, at four in the morning. But at that point, nothing more was happening in the forest. However, the craft did apparently reappear near the back gate of the base an hour later, but disappeared as soon as it had appeared. This was a sighting made by an anonymous source. Members of the Air Force went out to check out the area where the craft was claimed to have been seen, and they did officially witness three depressions in the ground where the craft was spotted, about half a foot deep. And then comes the UFO Cirque du Soleil portion of the story. Later on in the night of the 28th, a quote, red sun-like light was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed, and then it threw off little glowing particles, and then split into five different white glowing pieces, and then disappeared, and then three more, quotes star-like lights appeared, but closer to the horizon than the sky, but one was in the north, and two were in the south, and all of them moved about rapidly, and were red, green, and blue, and then they disappeared. The next day, on the 29th, members of the Air Force then decided to break out the Geiger counters. The holes in the ground had 0.1 milleruntingens, Milleruntingens, which I'll be honest, I tried reading three different articles about, both in terms of their description and their pronunciation, and I don't know what that means, or if it's a lot. Thermal nuclear physics lords tends to keep itself firmly above my abilities at comprehension. However, 
A nearby tree had 0.05 to 0.07 millirointingens. And then the report used the word moderate to describe it. So one might imagine that 0.1 is probably healthily more than moderate, but it also may be a normal amount of background radiation. Never has anything been more outside of my wheelhouse. Seriously, if you type in normal background radiation into Google, you get a new unit of measurement in the first article. Semicolon, 1.5 to 3.5 millisieverts, which prompted me to go on an entire other website to transfer that into millirontingens, which I'm not entirely certain I'm pronouncing correctly still. And, and that corresponds to 171 millirontingens, which is a bit of a statistical outlier to the aforementioned 0.05 to 0.07 millirointigens. So I'm just going to assume that any article that tells me if the measure is high or low is correct and just blindly take their word for it because I have not the time nor the skill to learn this level of physics. The personnel tested the trees specifically, though, because some trees had weird burn marks on them. This short note was written before that long monologue, so I apologize if the segues are odd. But... It is quite important to note that all of this information comes from an official report made by Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Halt, the Deputy Base Commander, and a memo made to the Ministry of Defense. This report is known today colloquially as the Halt Memo. The memo was made public two years later via the Freedom of Information Act of 1967 and was never classified in any way. That's not where all of this information comes from, but all of the things I just told you were straight from the official memo and his other writings, so it's not mere speculation to note that people at the base kinda thought that they were aliens abound, though they never came to an official conclusion at all. However, this is the only record about the event that was ever made public, and Halt himself has stated that he thought it was aliens, and that other reports of the event were definitely covered up, in all manners except for his memo. So now we must go down conspiratorial rabbit holes and such. To add for the sake of record keeping, Halt's memo went out two weeks after the event, and I think he got some of the dates wrong, so maybe this was a Boxing Day Christmas miracle after all. He also made audio recordings while he was investigating the forest, and that was made public in 1984. Stow your Orwell jokes now. But I do think that in the actual audio, he has the dates wrong, and then like in the future he was like, oh, I was wrong the day, I forgot what day it was. Make of that what you will. Before we venture into cover-up territory, though, there is another important record that was made public. Little, little plot twist. The Suffolk Police investigating the place made a record and released it to the public in 2005, which is admittedly quite late. In the report, it's made clear that the police weren't convinced the aliens were present whatsoever. A couple of officers were sent to Rendlesham Forest at 4 in the morning on the night of the 20, or, uh, yeah, 27th and reported seeing nothing in terms of aircraft, extraterrestrials, or otherwise. They also called the nearby RAF Bentwaters, the sibling emergency base, and the people there responded with something along the lines of, yeah, we didn't see anything weird. Sometimes, though, the Orford Nest Lighthouse, which is nearby, looks weird, IDK. They also also called the West Drayton Air Traffic Control Tower, which is in the vicinity of London, and they didn't report any odd aircraft in the area either. That being said, the same officers did show up later and confirmed that the marks on the ground were real. And I believe that an RAF Bentwaters member was there too, but the person who wrote the report was like, hmm, looks like an animal to me. Which is a little nonsensical considering the pattern and depth of the holes, but not impossible. Both officers have remained anonymous to this day. 
However, a constable at this point writes a letter to J. Scott Lee Esquire, or maybe an officer at this point, but definitely a constable in 1999. Dot, dot, dot. And he wrote a letter in 1999 and claimed a couple of things. One, that his friend, whose name was redacted, was the person who allegedly made the Suffolk police report, but claims that he never actually wrote it. And two, that the officers at Bentwater were diverted to Ortley Outpost that night for a mundane reason and were not at the base before investigating the UFO. Though three, the officers in question definitely didn't think anything weird was going on regardless of these additions to the story, and it's likely that the evening was so mundane that they wouldn't even have made a letter in the first place. Just the minimal standard report. Nevertheless, a report was made by someone, and four, there's a 50% chance that I read this whole letter incorrectly, so if some of that information is wrong, somebody please let me know immediately. That aside, though, this document wasn't made known to the public until 2005, well after a bunch of people asked about this sort of information. Side note, alien stuff is always going to be slightly more annoying than ghost stuff because nobody ever covers up ghost stuff. People show up and are like, ah, I saw a lamp move. Devin died on that property 70 years ago. What's going on? And you have enough information to make a Fox Esoterica episode. But with aliens and their ilk, it's always like a conspiracy. And I always have to read a lot more documents written by military people or government people, and their word usage annoys me. It sounds like it should be really streamlined, but I'm not really smart. And the reports are usually the opposite of concise. And also redacted often. That's not not annoying, despite, you know, it sounding like now I'm a conspiratorial person. And then people draw conclusions from the things that people aren't saying. And I misconstrue articles all the time from that. Aliens are cool. Legends about aliens are interesting. I just think that legal documents should be equally fun. Use a little bit of tone in your writing to indicate things better to the government. You know, get a little Dickensian about it. Shout out to Charles I. Halt, though, for doing the bare minimum to satisfy me. He could have done far worse. That being said, the Ministry of Defense gave their publication to a reporter who asked, and was part of the 14 Times publication, in 2001. There is an energy of cover-up going on to a degree, but it was revealed that no one really interviewed Halt or the patrolman after he sent his memo to the ministry, and they didn't really get the dates down or written or anything. It kind of looks like the government didn't believe in Halt enough to care, so follow-ups so follow to the investigation are more half-assed than dubiously altered, if anything. This is a theory popularized by Ministry of Defense staff and later UFO enthusiast Nick Pope. Quote, Brenda Lashim is the UK's best example of a visit by ET and maintains that there was no cover-up by the MOD, but rather a lack of action. Which is, you know, the thing that I just said. But I must credit sources. I didn't come up with that theory. However, more information was given to the public, and here it is listed. There was an effort to cut down the trees made earlier in 1980, and the trees around the Flying Saucer were cut down immediately after the event. Cover-up? Nah, this was planned months in advance. And in fact, the marks on the trees were actually marks used as indicators as to which trees should be cut down. I do believe the burn marks play into this, but I'm not a forestry expert. There is also double confirmation in the MOD notice that nothing showed up on any radars off base, even when Halt was on the phone with radar operators, claiming that the operators claimed to see something. Excerpt another article I found said that maybe the Heathrow and London Towers found a blip on their radar on the 25th over Woodbridge, so who's to say? There was also another report claiming that the radiation measurements are dubious, but please never ask me to understand the science behind radiation. I've given up on that particular bit of evidence at this point. 
Peniston, one of the original scouts in the forest, definitely claimed to have seen the craft, and he drew a picture of it in a notebook. I must trust that you look it up yourselves, podcast listeners, tis the curse of an auditory medium. And that it was a sleek and black-like obsidian thing that had symbols etched onto it. He also later claimed in an interview to have touched the craft, while the other Air Force patrolmen claimed things like, it flew off as soon as we approached. So there's some story discrepancy there. I think it's mostly Peniston's story that changed, because I did read that he originally claimed that he didn't see the UFO for too long. The people on the base weren't the only ones to see weird stuff in the sky that night, however. Richard Bertolino and a Sergeant Hall were on patrol at REF Bentwater that night, and bopping and hopping around one in the morning, when they saw a, quote, very bright falling star. It had a blue-green luminescence, sparkled sick tail to it. Uh, I don't know why I wrote sick, I think that's grammatically correct. And it seemed as though it would make impact with a nearby location, and that it would land between REF Woodbridge and REF Bentwater, which is, you know, the Brendlesham Forest. I don't think Bertolino went to the other base to investigate until he received a radio call from Burrow and or Peniston, it could have been either, prompting him to ascend to a higher hill to get a better view of the light. He didn't go into the forest, he simply remained on the radio, which is cool, because this testimony matches the Air Force men in the woods testimony perfectly. Not that I listened to it or anything, it's not recorded anywhere for me to listen to. But devil's advocate moment, I think Bertolino came forward about this in 2009, well after the story gained media traction. Unrelated, Bertolino was the guy that Peniston showed his little drawings to in an interview that I actually did see. A soldier named Sergeant Adrian Bustinza went on record to say that he saw something going in and out of the trees, and witnessed that something going on as showing a whitish, reddish, orangish, bluish light. He arrived shortly after the others. He didn't really report much else. Both Lieutenant Baran, who worked at REF Bentwater, and Master Sergeant Chandler, who worked at Woodbridge, would come forward and report that they did report men going out to investigate a crash, but also believed that all the lights that the three men reported seen were the lights of the Orford Ness Lighthouse. There were continuing reports. Jim Penniston and John Burroughs would go on to various news outlets and paranormally-minded article writers to report their stories. They even maintained a forum online for a while, as well as a Facebook page, both I was unable to find. But they'd often go on to various interviews separately. Holtz would also go on about his beliefs on the incident in a similar manner. Penniston has a notebook on him that he brought onto the Sci-Fi Network and the History Channel's documentaries, Britain's Roswell, 2005, and I Know What I Saw, 2009. The patrolman also gets the date different from some sources, claiming that it occurred on the very not-boxing day, the 27th, and he allegedly writes a detailed account on all that transpired that evening with a timestamp. But some discrepancies in the date, in addition to the aforementioned discrepancy with the um, touching of the craft, led reporters to believe that he fabricated the journal at a later date in order to fuel his story more. The first mentions of this journal, wherein the aforementioned drawings and descriptions were mentioned, was in an interview with the magazine Omni in 1996. No other member at the base recalls Penniston talking about a journal ever. Also with the Omni magazine, Penniston reports that he learned, via hypnosis and repressed memory, parentheses, a very, very dubious speculation, that the aliens in the craft were actually human time travelers from thousands of years in the future. This piece comes from a 1995 interview with Omni, and in fact, Halt himself was interviewed, though his speculation more dealt with the witnessing of lights and the angst of not having anyone in the radio report anything coming up on the radar than with time travelers. In 2009, Burroughs would claim that he and the other two men had never gone into the woods before that night. 
Burroughs simply never managed it, and Penniston and Kamensag were new to the base at the time. In 2010, Penniston would write on his forum that he actually received the information that he'd need for his journal telepathically, and originally wrote the notes down in binary that night after the event. I promise I'm not trying to bully Penniston, He's the one who's out here claiming the widest array of claims post-Rendlisham Forest incident. Halt would release an affidavit in 2010, and though it is thought to be the result of 30 years of memories floating in the air, there are contradictions with it in regards to claims made by the OG memo. Namely, the fact that the affidavit claims that there were three craft instead of two, and that light beams were being shot when the memo made no mention of that. It seems that details get added the more time goes on, and I have thoughts on that later, but they're not malicious, I promise. There are a lot of more interviews and a lot more alien hunting documentaries with the people involved, and I don't make a habit of scoping that sort of thing out on Netflix often. It is now time, though, for the complete devil's advocate moment. So according to the British Astronomical Association's newsletter, a comet and maybe some meteors were verifiably falling in the sky. The comet on Christmas Day, and maybe some meteor-type celestial objects on Boxing Day in southern England. But that just might be also dot dot dot. Russian Cosmos 749 rocket re-entering the atmosphere. But that happened at 9 in the PM on Christmas, like six hours before the Rendlesham Forest incident started, unless it started on the day afterwards. It wasn't a satellite, but instead the part of a rocket that broke off in orbit. It floated around space for five years and then made its way down, burning up in the atmosphere. Funny anecdote, a lot of people in Northwest Europe called in on this one and were like, oh, gotten him, das ist ein Raumschiff. This object did not show up on any radars though, so who's to say if English radars even work in the first place? I think a lot of military personnel show up later in the year and cut down the trees, I talked about that already, but beyond the burns in the trees and the divots, it wasn't as though there was a lot of trace evidence in the first place. But now the hypothetical trace evidence that is the trees is now gone. Everyone's blaming the lighthouse from earlier, also. Damning evidence, though, is that the lighthouse shines directly from where Halt was standing when he was making his call, and it flashes every five seconds at the same interval where Halt goes, there it is, there it is again, there it is again again, in his recording. That's not an exact quote. And also, also, it was the second brightest lighthouse in England at the time. Except, the lighthouse was to the east, and when Halt claimed to see things like, oh damn, lights are in the sky in the north and south. Don't know why I said north like that. That's admittedly a bit of an eye raiser, just a smidge, so I'll give him that. There is another claim coming from a man by the name of Kevin Conde, or Kevin Cond, who, although he officially made his report in 2003, would talk often about how he made an attempt to prank the patrolman one night. According to Conde, he got a spotlight and a loudspeaker, changed the colors of the spotlight with a filter, and drove around willy-nilly in the attempt to scare the men. The reason for the prank being to scare the superstitious gate guard who may or may not have been one of the men exploring the lights. Conde can't remember if he pulled this prank on the specific Boxing Day, but regardless, he did have something to say on Penniston and Burroughs' Facebook pages. Quote, I was almost certainly the Woodbridge Patrolman, or LE Flight Chief, that night of Holt's expedition. All I remember was the laughing about people seeing UFOs. That was not grammatically correct, Condi. It was not treated seriously at all. It was a non-event when it happened, and the stories of the believers are the ones that have morphed over time. If the USAF did not make a big deal about it, it was because they were appalled that the light colonel, lieutenant colonel, would be so nutty as to take a bunch of security troops and some guys from disaster prep on an extended walk through the woods in a foreign country. The higher command carefully ignored it and hoped that it and Lieutenant Colonel Halt would just fade away. 
So that's his take on it. Somebody's blaming bears and weird deer on an article, and I'm not going to let them, because that would pretty much have, like, zero details, and I didn't get it. Apparently, rabbits and squirrels make holes similar to the holes that match the triangle patterned indentations, a fact that I was able to verify with details. Stupid bear and deer believers. Bear and deer are fake. There was also a huge storm in 1987, and a lot of the forest was destroyed, although many trees were replanted later. This obscured what was left of the already meager amounts of trace evidence. Unrelated, I just read that the forest reported hurricane category 3 winds, and I didn't know that England could get hurricanes. I don't know why I thought that, but yeah, I guess yeah, you can get pretty bad storms over there. Sorry about that, England. There is yet another anecdote that surfaced in 2018 with the Soviet SAS, saying Soviet might be redundant, but I don't actually think I know what that acronym stands for, claimed that they were doing a revenge prank on the U.S. Air Force by parachuting a soldier into the woods one night. This happened in the August of 1980, and may have happened at other points if this report is to be believed, but the claim is that they were still doing secret code chicanery with flashing lights and balloons. This is, there is very little likelihood that this occurred during the night of the incident, but I should bring it up just in case. And with that, I've run out of notes, and it's time for the conclusions. So, to start, if there is anything valid to this story, it's that three Air Force men meandered about through the woods and claimed to see a craft and a bunch of lights shining through the trees. There's no real counterpoints to seeing a big metal triangle flying around, unless all three men and also Halt, who is on the phone with them, are lying. Which, you know, could be true. But I can't really find any evidence for people explaining away what that was, not that evidence doesn't exist. There may have really been something alien related in the sky, I guess. The lights in the other nights and also the weird force markings and radiation can all be safely and easily explained. A lot of stuff happened that night, and it may have looked weird, but you know, if you're in the alien mindset, you're going to be looking for a lot of alien evidence and attribute it to aliens before indulging in Occam's razor. However, all being said, this story is annoying for one big reason. A lot of people immediately trace down the conspiracy rabbit hole when I don't think this story warrants it at all. I genuinely feel like the government didn't believe Halt and the squad and just put zero investigative effort into finding aliens as opposed to undermining anyone's investigations. A lot of players, such as Charles Halt, Nick Pope, the ufologist I was also on the Ministry of Defense I was talking about earlier, and witnesses in general, in addition to Margaret Thatcher, book writer person whose name I forgot, and probably somewhere else, were on the greatest adventure of all time to find the deep conspiracy. Why did I write that? I think Nick Pope was against that. I don't know, I got confused. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Uh, but they were trying to find this really big, deep conspiracy when I really just think that there's a lack of interest by the government in general and nobody wrote down anything. They went on to talk shows and podcasts and explained how there were roadblocks along the way, but I think the biggest roadblock was that there weren't any reports to begin with, because the government didn't think it was important enough to write anything down. Or maybe people cared a little, but they were, like, not in the mood to have a non-alien believer reputation going on. Ian Ridpath, welcome back, Chekhov's gun dude I was talking about earlier, went on the opposite of a conspiratorial adventure and wrote a lot about how this is a highly skeptical case. His website, which I linked in the notes, does a wonderful job of counter-arguing any nonsensical aspects to the story and brings all this evidence together really nicely. There's also a little anecdote where Halt claims to have discovered that something did show up on radars at a point and nobody said anything until they retired, so doubles that devil's advocate, I guess. There is something to be said about the fact that 80 billion people came forward to give 80 billion different little excuses for everything after the story grew to its current sizable size, so triple devil's advocate. 
I can be convinced that aliens were there on night one. I can't be convinced that there was a cover-up at all. I also think that it's funny that aliens were like, alright, forest in the middle of nowhere, no one lives here, let's take a little quick pit stop. Uh-oh, it's actually a military base. Damn it, damn it, you're gonna have to hold it. Glimgorf, you can pee at the Mercury McDonald's. I listened to a couple interviews and it sounds like everyone involved really believes they saw something and they also always look so stressed, like this information leak is going to get them killed. Zuma pointed out with the interviews that, with Halt that it kind of makes it look like someone's pointing a gun at him while he's speaking. He's really nervous in it. Not to make fun of him. Uh, so I will give these men the benefit of the doubt and claim, with my absolute lack of psychiatric training, that if details are getting made up, it's because they're embellishing their memory to make their case sound more plausible to themselves as well as others, and that sort of thing happens subconsciously. But it doesn't change the fact that people definitely think they saw something that couldn't be explained on Boxing Day night. At the end of the day, I'm reminded why covering alien stories is more of a rare treat than a regular endeavor for me. I don't believe the conspiratorial side of this at all. I'm even on the fence as to whether or not aliens were bopping about in the first place. If someone told me this event was confirmed to be a Soviet triangular airplane or something, I'd believe it immediately. I'm not against every conspiracy, but there comes a time where you have to determine whether or not you're bending an otherwise mundane story into something that it's not, just to fit a narrative. If people are doing a handstand and a jig to prove that the story goes deeper, look at any other explanations just as often as the conspiratorial ones. That way, we can prevent things like QAnon, or right-wing extremism from happening. That's my alien hot take for today. Don't let aliens be a right-wing thing. Do it for me. I guess onto the- yeah, we did the episode. Ending time. That'll wrap up this Yuletide Foxo Esoterica episode. I promise, I'm a pagan who celebrates primarily Yule. I just would once again like to clarify that I decided to release episodes on the 25th a while ago, and now I'm reaping the decidedly Christian consequences of that. Actually, full disclosure, I originally intended on putting this episode out a year ago, for last year's Christmas. The way that I do this podcast has been very inconsistent, and the formula has changed a lot up until this year, parentheses I hope, but I was never able to release this episode that I recorded because my guest's audio was corrupted and I couldn't use it. So as a consequence, I've been sitting on the script for a full year and very, very eager to release it again, strictly because of the poem at the very beginning that I put so much effort into. I'm actually more proud of that poem than you're probably thinking I am. But as a boon, I didn't have to do that much research work this Christmas, so I'm not complaining whatsoever. Special shout out though to Rebecca Lister, Mikey Davis, and Brandon Wright, Friends from acting school, if you're listening to this, I assure you that we'll get an episode out sometime soon. But until then, I'd like to dedicate this story to you all, especially Rebecca, because her family's British. Moving on, though, it's time for our Review-Tide Review Corner. You'll be glad to hear that the Rendlesham Forest has a trail called the UFO Trail. And you know people have been reviewing that. The Little Triangle spaceship is even out front, but like, a model of it. They also have this little food truck called the Bear Grylls Forest Catering, it has a little bear on it. Ooh woo. Mevlin Dawson writes, Great place for peace and quiet. Also tire the kids and dogs out. Not sure I'm convinced about the UFO. Inquisitive face? Five stars. Sarah Eaton writes, Fascinating history, but it was probably military top secret stuff rather than alien activity. Different trails to walk through the woods. Yeah, I disagree, but I respect your opinions. Five stars. She also posted a picture of Fly Amanada cap she found, so you know what that... 
Uh, she, she found mushrooms. She's valid. I love mushrooms. Mushrooms are cool. Study my ecology. Summer Karen writes, A lot of the forest is bland and doesn't entice you into wanting to keep going to find the UFO sculpture. We did eventually find it, and after some photos had to keep walking through more bland forest or cut down areas until we eventually got back to the road and to our car. Three stars. Fuck you, writes Average. Nothing special. Boring. Two stars. Straight up, everybody on the Google Maps review has taken a picture of a fly at Minato Camp. I feel seen. I know this is like the most basic mushroom, but I feel validated. And with that, our Rendlesham Forest Incident episode is now safely and comfortably tucked away in a manger. Sleep in heavenly peace this episode. Sleep in heavenly peace. You can find Fox Esoterica on Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at F-O-R-S-E-T-I-F-O-X. And you can support Fox Esoterica on Patreon and Coffee at F-O-R-S-E-T-I-F-O-X for both. Thanks to Senal Chiquito for the podcast artwork. Have a wonderful winter, everyone. Hopefully I was able to inject a bit of esotericism into your no- or December. Did I almost just say November? I fucking have had too much rosé. Holy shit. First take. First take. First take. First take. The preceding audio was kept in because, believe it or not, when I sat down to record this episode, I did the poem on the first take, all in one take, uh, because I'm incredible. If, you, if you're if you looking to hire a voice actor, like, oh my gosh, I'm right here. Oh my gosh, I'm right here.